This podcast was recorded before Tier 3 lockdown measures were imposed on Manchester. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, I fought the North and the North won as Manchester refuses to enter the highest tier of COVID measures and Wales unleashes the firebreak breathing dragon. What does rebellion in the regions mean for the government's virus strategy? Can Boris Johnson bribe his way back to primacy or is Andy Burnham now king in the North? Plus, is the Republican ship sinking? As Senate Republicans distance themselves from President Trump, have they left it too late to stop themselves going down with the Donald? And what's going on with Hunter Biden's laptop? Plus, what got you hooked on politics? Our panellists travel back in time to discuss their formative political experiences. All this and more in today's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Let's introduce this week's political task force. First up, hello to broadcaster, author of the recently released book, Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse. She's moonlighting from Romaniacs. It's Nina Schick. Hello, Nina. How are you? Hi. Hi, Andrew. I'm good. Thank you. Glad to hear it. Also with us today is writer, broadcaster and campaigns manager at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. This podcast is for the many, not the few. It's Minnie Raman. Hello, Minnie. Hiya. And completing the team, we have former Foreign Office diplomat and professional globetrotter Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. How are you doing? Hi, Andrew. All good, thanks. Before we get started, I want to ask you all quickly about last week's spy cops furore, or less glamorously, the covert human intelligence sources, open brackets, criminal conduct, close brackets bill, which caused mass problems for Labour. 34 MPs, mostly from the left, rebelled. Two front benches quit in protest at the bill, which provides legal immunity to undercover operatives. Arthur, what exactly was in this bill, and is it as worrying as it was portrayed? Well, this bill is to regulate the activities of of undercover agents. So this is not officers, police officers, uh, MI6 officers, whatever. It's it's ordinary people who are assisting those agencies in their activities. And in certain circumstances, you could imagine if someone is part of a criminal gang and they're in touch with the police and they say, uh, you know, I'm I'm going to give you information about what this gang is up to. The police might say, okay, well, you're going to have to continue to be in that gang and therefore we're going to have to agree to let you participate in some criminal activity so that we get information. And that's what this is about. Now, it has been very controversial because in some cases, it appears that people who are working as, as agents or as covert, covert human intelligence sources have been given the go-ahead to commit very serious crimes. And it's rather questionable as to whether or not, uh, you know, the, the public interest is served in this case. But it, but it is ultimately, it's about how you manage these rather difficult operations. I mean, you've worked you know, cl- adjacent to this area in your work with PREVENT, the, the anti-radicalisation programme. Shami Chakrabarti says that granting state agents unquestioned extra-legal powers is undemocratic, un-British and contrary to the rule of law. Do, are these powers necessary? How, how carefully do they have to be handled? Do you think it's, are they justifiable? I think they are. And, and I recognise that, you know, that might not be a view that is shared by, by quite a few of the listeners to this podcast. But to, just to address what Shami Chakrabarti said, mm-hmm. The real issue is about unquestioned extra-legal powers. So the, the plan for this bill, and, and to be clear, I don't think this bill is perfect, but the plan for this bill is that any uh, criminal activity that is carried out by one of these, these undercover agents will have been discussed, agreed, authorised, and um, kind of registered in, in a kind of formal process. So it's not about unquestioned extra-legal powers. It's about a situation where... The, the, the case handler, the officer handling the agent and the agent have had an agreement about what, what would be acceptable. Now, I think there are problems here. I think one of the big problems is the extension of this framework to a whole range of agencies. Turns out the Food Standards Agency is covered. I mean, how many undercover operatives are working in this Food Standards Agency? Who knows? And I think the other thing is it gives too many powers to the Home Secretary. And when you have a Home Secretary in the mould of Priti Patel, that's something we should be worried about. But I think the, the underlying principle is that this is an element of law enforcement and security work. And ultimately, it's much better that it has a regulatory framework than what has happened hitherto, which is effectively it's been rather ad hoc and, and, and has been sort of made up as they go along. 
Many Labour uh, changed its policy a few years ago to require judicial warrants for the use of undercover agents, and the approach this time was was abstention and, and, and much less robust opposition. Is this change of tack wise? Is, is I mean, it, has, it hasn't played well with the left of the party at all, has it? No, not at all. And I think there's two things going on here. You know, it's it's not necessarily clear where Keir Starmer's front bench stands on a whole host of complex policy issues so far. And I think they still have a lot of development there. But I think it does say a lot about Keir Starmer's leadership, that he's either afraid to make principled stands in areas of human rights law, which he is very well versed in, in favour of some form of negotiation with the Conservatives. But I don't think that will actually lead him anywhere, because once Boris Johnson or, or should I say Dominic Cummings smells blood, they're not going to give headway unless there is huge public outcry. So I think he's selling himself short and I can't quite fathom whether it's because he thinks he will be more effective in achieving change by not opposing everything the government puts forward or because he thinks the public aren't interested in this as, as a political issue. Do you think that the rebellion is is significant or, or that uh, perhaps uh, members of the Labour left are kind of straining at the leash for, the, for, for a chance to rebel in public against Starmer? I think it is significant. Of course, there are ongoing tensions between the Labour left and, and Keir Starmer's leadership. You know, there have been a couple of opportunities for the Labour left to rebel against positions that Keir Starmer has taken or or not taken. And on the whole, they haven't been too antagonistic. But in the last few weeks, this has come to a head. You know, for example, a few weeks ago, there was a whipped abstention on the Overseas Operations Bill. And that was the bill that saw rising star of the left, Nadia Whitamy, removed as a junior minister. And her position there was a peace deal in many ways. And that breaking down of relationships is fundamental to how Labour is able to proceed through the next few years. And it, it feels almost a step backwards where we're going back to, you know, the usual suspects on the back benches opposing what the front bench is doing. But this time the Labour membership is differently constituted. So Keir Starmer has to find a way to bring these people on board, which which I think is really ironic because that is the same criticism that Jeremy Corbyn received for not working with the Labour old guard. Mm. Nina Schick, on a very loosely security-related theme, this week we had the spectacle of Theresa May reacting very, well, shareably, shall we say, uh, to Michael Gove in Parliament, as he was saying how leaving the EU somehow means we can cooperate more on security matters. Theresa May's face was a picture on this. Um, did Did you see this? It was a picture. She simply mouthed what in absolute kind of shock at what her colleague was saying on the front benches. I mean, she, as the rise, almost as almost this rising star backbencher who understands the intricacies of how difficult it is to conduct these negotiations with the EU. And what Michael Gove was saying, just for the record, is absolute and utter tosh. He's making the argument that if Britain were to leave the EU without a deal, this would enhance security cooperation. Um, Not only would the nature of the relationship between the EU and the UK be severely acrimonious because of no deal Brexit, but the fact would be that overnight Britain would be kicked out of all kinds of police databases that it currently shares with the EU, and it would have to negotiate on a bilateral country by country basis, some kind of security cooperation. So the fact that he can stand up and simply make these claims in Parliament is really outrageous because it simply is not true. So, first up, is Britain descending into Kovanarchy? Since the new three-tier rules came into force last week, Wales has declared its own two-week firebreak lockdown starting this Friday, and Greater Manchester has been stuck in a remarkable standoff with London as the government sought to force it to join Liverpool, West Lancashire and other regions in the top tier of restrictions. Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham has been holding out for better financial support for the region. Minnie, it's looking an awful lot like Westminster is no longer determining the direction of travel on this stuff. Do you think, have, have, they, have they lost control? of uh, of the regions after losing control of the virus? Well, I think that coronavirus has basically exposed the inadequacies of the relationships between central government and local government and, and what devolved powers mean. And I think we've been slowly floating in this direction for a long time. You know, since their election in, in May 2017, Metro mayors have 
have been lobbying central government for further devolution. It, it's not a new conversation. And I think the reason that Metro mayors are, are proving their worth at this time is because they are acting as a voice for their local authorities and, and for their communities. And it is local authorities who could make a real difference to people's lives at this point in time. You know, they could make a difference to how Track and Trace operates. They are the ones who control social care and can keep a really close eye on, on public health. And they run the services which really make a difference to people's lives. But because they have been so underfunded and under-resourced because of, of austerity and the like, I think that this kind of standoff was inevitable and being in a crisis has just brought all of that to the foreground. The standoff is, is really remarkable. And uh, Andy Burnham is holding out for a better financial package. He wants a repeat of the 80% of, of wages received on the furlough, not 67% that the government are, are offering right now. Is, is he right to sort of try and drive such a hard bargain in such crisis times? Yeah, you know, I, I feel really sad that this conversation is even taking place, especially because we, you know, we know that the result of a, a long negotiation and hesitation in implementing stricter rules is that actually people might die and the NHS might be overwhelmed because intervention has taken place at too late a stage. But ultimately, what Andy Burnham is doing is recognising that if you do not put clear financial measures in place, either people will be forced to break the rules by continuing to work all will be at severe risk of destitution. And you can't have a public in that position. And the government has to be honest about what will happen on the ground. You know, they can't continue to bury their head in the sand. Manchester has a high proportion of people who are reliant on insecure contracts, on zero-hour contracts. Andy Burnham spoke really powerfully about the, the taxi drivers and the pub workers who would be pushed into hardship. And ultimately, it is the government's responsibility to take that on board, recognise that the delays are bad for health, for public health, but also that restricting a financial package is also bad for public health and the economy. On Liverpool social media, which I look at a lot, uh, it's alive with claims that Boris Johnson's always hated the city, he doesn't care about it. Do you think that this is kind of resurrecting the notion that there are there are favoured cities which the Conservative Party and the South East care about and there are those that they just don't care about? Yeah, I mean, he did famously slander Liverpool and Liverpudlians in an yeah, article did. in The Spectator, so I'm not really surprised that that's how people feel. Um, I think Liverpool is representative of the real Red Wall and they have a strong community voice because of their history. And I feel like the government is reluctant to spend money on these areas because they just don't understand them. They don't understand the needs of the communities and what it's like to live there. And I think this is really about how Westminster is detached from, from real people themselves and increasingly our politics is, central politics is increasingly performative and, and devoid of meaning. And I think... You know, the coronavirus response, it has not been apolitical. Politics is embedded in how the government is responding to this whole crisis. And what they are doing is protecting their own interests rather than the interests of people who will be pushed into hardship. And you can see that in every level of the government response to the pandemic. For example, the appointment of Dido Harding, whose husband is the anti-corruption champion. And I really feel like it's an old boys club at the end of the day. And even a pandemic doesn't appear to have stopped that from occurring. Nina, Johnson's got an 80-seat majority. He could just impose a deal. Is it a fear of exacerbating the, the, the stuff that Minnie's just described that's holding him back from doing that? So we're in a situation where the Prime Minister is effectively going to have to bribe Manchester to, to close. Think about what the optics look, would look like if Johnson imposed these restrictions on Manchester. I mean, he is basically going to make Andy Burnham, who is already apparently rising as kind of the king of the north, who's going to make him even more of a heroic political figure. And to Johnson, you know, that could be a really devastating political blow, because let's not forget, since 2016, since Brexit, since the winning of the election um, last year, he has positioned himself as the champion of the people. So if it kind of this narrative that, you know, Westminster, a distant, faraway place run by these elite kind of old boys club is imposing restrictions on the kind of the hard, hard on people in the north who are struggling with the difficulties of covid that would be really devastating to johnson so he wants to steer well clear of that dynamic but he has found himself in a scenario where effectively having given individual deals to individual regions we're now 
in, in a kind of a price comparison site scenario where Manchester is comparing itself to Liverpool and Liverpool's considering it, comparing itself to West Lancashire and people are wondering why gyms are open in one place and not in another. Does it bring us back to the old question of it would be better to impose a larger, more consistent, more straightforward lockdown across most of, if not the whole country, rather than try and negotiate these individual deals? Yeah, totally. You can see how perhaps when they conceived of the idea of having three different kind of tiers of lockdown, it seemed like a brilliant kind of policy strategic policy move. However, the reality of it is that what Johnson is doing right now is very similar to what the entire government's approach has been to the pandemic throughout the year, really badly thought out. Uh, badly communicated and badly enforced. And you basically have this worst of two worlds situation right now. On one hand, you either accept that there isn't going to be a vaccine for a long time, that society is going to have to learn to live with COVID. And so you can't have these kind of restrictions. On the other, you accept that you're going to have to lock down society and then basically provide the financial assistance given that businesses are going to have to shut down. But what Johnson is trying to do is not provide the financial assistance and make sure that life doesn't completely lock down. So you have this worst of both worlds, which is already playing, already basically spiraling out of control. And um, you're going to have to see one region after the other as they go into lockdown, demanding all kinds of insurances, especially financial ones from, from government. Well, while we've been recording, the deadline for a deal with Manchester has whizzed past. Like so many deadlines seem to whiz past us these days, making a lovely whooshing sound when nothing happens. By the time you listen to this, a deal may have been done. Who knows? Um, Arthur, COVID is already kind of splitting any degree of coordination in in the Union of the United Kingdom. Scotland, Central Belt's under strict rules. Wales has just announced its uh, circuit breaker. Could it split England too if we, you know, maintain this standoff between Metro Mayors, the north of England, and an increasingly isolated Westminster? Well, I think fundamentally the issue here is that people don't trust the the Westminster government to get this COVID thing right. And that's not really surprising if you just look at the numbers, you know, one of the worst um, death rates in the world. And um, we've got, you know, the very ineffective uh, test and trace systems and all the rest of it. So my sense is, it's not that people are inherently sort of losing faith in the concept of the UK on this subject. It's just that they've lost faith with the government in Westminster, Boris Johnson's government, on the question of COVID. And therefore, if you have a local leader such as Andy Burnham, who appears to be competent, focused, you know, standing up for your interests, or equally someone in Wales, you're more likely to, to have confidence in, in the policies that they enact. Do you think there's an element of nationalist headbutting here, not just in Scotland and Wales, but also in the uh, the, the kind of perhaps less realistic independence-minded things, or the, the Liverpool independence and so forth? It's clearly feeding nationalism, particularly in Scotland, or, or certainly feeding the case for Scottish independence. Again, because it's very easy for the SNP to say, well, look at that shit show down in London. Why would you want to be part of that? And that feels like quite a compelling argument. I mean, I'm sure it will, will drive some support towards uh, Plaid Cymru in Wales. But I mean, it's, it's, it's not a kind of serious uh, possibility that, that Wales is going to get independent. So I, I think what it does do, though, it just undermines confidence in government's ability to sort of take problems and, and handle them. Now, whether that becomes something that's associated specifically with Boris Johnson or it becomes a sort of more of a crisis in faith in the state, I, I think it's probably too early to say. It's There is a certain kind of circular irony that's slightly pleasing that a government that rode to power on Brexit, a thing that happened because people were convinced that you can't trust Westminster, now get into power and prove that you can't trust Westminster by their own actions. There is a little yes, bit. It's, it's, um, it's a very sort of neat illustration. I mean, a lot of the people in power have spent most of their sort of professional lives saying that ultimately, you know, government is not the solution and we, and we need to rely less on government. And, and they've, I think they've done a great job in proving that case. At least they're consistent. We, we, we'll, we'll give them that. Um, it's also interesting that London's gone into tier two. So we have the even weirder irony of London versus Westminster. Westminster's in London, last I looked. Yeah, but I suppose, I mean, ever since Brexit, arguably London has been 
out of kilter with with the people holding power in Westminster. You know, clearly London is a largely left of centre, sort of internationalist, liberal minded city. And, and the government in control, you know, is is very dependent on the votes of people who don't share that those views and, and largely aren't, aren't representing London politically. Obviously, I don't think you're going to have a independent city-state of London, but it, it does rather emphasise the degree to which um, there is this sort of difference of, of uh, orientation there. Many. Keir Starmer was calling for a circuit breaker for the country last week before Wales announced theirs branding himself very much as the one who's fun, who's uh, following the science. Do you think that a second national lockdown is, is effectively inevitable? I think it probably is. Uh, I'll be honest and say that I fall into the category of people who always thought that a second lockdown was inevitable. Um, you know, I just don't see how you can have differing levels of rules and uncertainty for different regions and for people crossing regions and schools having to de- decide when to send classes home and how to resolve social distancing and parents not being able to take time off work. And the pandemic is in its essence chaotic and what is needed is clarity and for people to be able to trust that their health is the priority, especially if you want compliance with those rules to stop the spread. And that is not what has happened. And yes, people may be nervous or unwilling about going back into a second lockdown, particularly as winter comes. But I think the effect that clarity has on behaviour will mean that more people stick to those rules than they're currently doing um, and that it will be more effective. You're a Brummie. Who's who's Metro Mayor for Birmingham? Have you got a combative Andy Burnham type? No, we don't. I am so jealous. Um, We have Conservative Metro Mayor Andy Street. Um, He's not quite as vocal as as Andy Burnham is. And it's a bit annoying because Birmingham is in a really similar economic situation to Manchester. You know, there are lots of people here on low incomes, lots of people in insecure work. Uh, families, a high proportion of uh, BME population, you know, those are all high risk groups. And I think that we really do need someone to stand up for us and to be really vocal. You know, it is one of the forgotten regions often. Uh, We're currently in tier two. and, And I think if we do reach tier three, that will be the point at which the local politics is really tested. You've just volunteered for the job, haven't you? I hope not. 2022. We continue to spiral into the nightmare of the US presidential election. Hope you got your snacks in for election night. And while you might not want to jinx it by refreshing 538 too many times, there are reasons to think that it might not be Donald Trump's night. Senior Republicans are scrambling to distance themselves from the president. Trump ally Lindsey Graham has admitted that the White House might be for the Democrats' taking. And Mitch McConnell refused to consider an emergency stimulus package backed by Donald Trump. Senator Ben Sass went further, telling Nebraska voters that Trump has used the White House only to enrich himself. He had made allies of white supremacists and botched the COVID response. Meanwhile, Amy Coney Barrett might be heading for the Supreme Court, but in every other respect, autumn is looking like a Republican bloodbath. Plus, we've even got our October surprise in the shape of a New York Post story about the supposedly incriminating contents of a laptop that supposedly belonged to Hunter Biden. Arthur, we've seen a number of prominent Republicans come out to criticise Trump in the past few days. Mitch McConnell denounced the White House's lax COVID protocols. Are Republicans really jumping off a sinking ship? I don't think they are really. I think they're showing the same amount of spine, i.e. not very much, that they've shown ever since Trump was actually selected. So before the election, in fact, uh, back back in 2016, he has destroyed the traditional... Republican Party and taken it into this kind of bizarro white nationalist culture war space. But the difficulty is that with his base, which is admittedly a shrinking number of people, that's still wildly popular. And those who denounce Trump too heavily have still been subject to primary challenges and, and, you know, losing support from donors and so on. So I think You've got one or two who are kind of looking for where they'll jump, but they're not yet jumping. I mean, having said that, uh, we shouldn't be refreshing 538. I've been doing it every half an hour, and there seems to be a consistent 10 to sort of 9 to 10% poll gap. Is this is what we're seeing, The, uh, the, the these instances that I mentioned, is it essentially a wet finger in the air saying which way the wind is blowing and providing an escape route should, should it go the way it looks like it's going to go? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I'm sure that, you know, if he loses, the polls prove correct and he loses in a fairly serious sort of, whether you call it a landslide or a fairly serious loss, lots of people will pop up and tell tell you how many times they told Donald Trump they didn't agree with him. And, you know, we'll find out of all these mysterious people who are behind the scenes, you know, were doing the right thing. Uh, but they're, they're not just able to do it publicly at the moment. But I think there there is a wider point here, which is that, in a way, it couldn't ever be different. Part of the thing with Donald Trump is he can't be controlled. You can't sit him down and say, well, Mr. President, the way we, we could win this election is by, you know, emphasizing this aspect or by listening more closely to scientists on COVID. He's somebody who is completely undisciplined, has zero interest in the opinions of anyone except himself. And so it I, not not that I sympathize with these Republicans, but there is no way, I think, that they can do something which will stop Donald Trump being Donald Trump. There's an opinion piece by Ross Douthat in today's New York Times, hope I'm saying his name correctly, which is effectively boldly saying Trump's given up. He's, he's ostentatiously ignored the pandemic, doubled down on attacking experts. Uh, he hasn't cooperated on uh, relief spending. Do you think, Arthur, that he has mentally thrown in the towel or or, or, or is it that thing that you just described, just Trump's going to Trump? Well, I think if we recall that the evidence suggests he's pretty thick and he surrounds himself with people who tell him what he wants to hear. So whilst he must be aware that the campaign isn't going very well, there must be enough people telling him he's doing it brilliantly, enough people filtering out all but the polls, the small number of polls that still show him with a lead in one or two places. And I'm sure there are things that are happening in the Republican campaign that we don't know about, which ultimately will prove useful for the Republicans. It may not get them over the line, but there will be, you know, online things, you know, or the, the world of Cambridge Analytica hasn't disappeared. It may not be that particular company. So there'll be stories about, oh, we've got huge engagement, Mr. President, on your latest speech or your latest, you know, event and all that kind of thing. So I, I, I sense that probably inside his head, he he's he's in this kind of weird space where part of the time he can't bear the possibility of being a loser because obviously that to his own self-perception would, would be a terrible thing. And then the other part of him just believes he's going to win because he's Donald Trump and he's a winner. Mm. Nina, a huge and bizarre part of this campaign has been the QAnon conspiracy theory which finally Facebook, Twitter and YouTube have started to get a grip on. They've begun removing QAnon conspiracy material from their sites. Is it possible to contain this anymore once it's metastasized into the, the wider political debate? It is possible-ish to contain it in the sense that we have seen now that the platforms can actually crack down on this type of conspiracy thinking and disinformation, something that they can do pretty effectively. Facebook has been saying for a matter of months that it's going to remove QAnon content, but it was only in this most recent spate where they actually removed all the communities. That being said, it has metastasized, like you mentioned, and this type of community is now moving offline into other communities where they want to continue to share these conspiratorial beliefs. Which begs the question, really, why didn't the platforms do something sooner? And a good point to have done something would have been last year in 2019, when the FBI identified QAnon as a domestic terror threat. You know, the, the, the fact that it has taken so long for them to crack down on QAnon is really irresponsible. It was absolutely incredible to see Trump at the town hall last week, given the opportunity to distance himself and denounce QAnon, claiming that he'd never heard of it. And then after having had it explained to him, saying he didn't know anything about it. I mean, it's short of a wink and a big thumbs up. It's hard to imagine more of an encouragement to this kind of thinking. Of course. And we've seen Trump do that with various other kind of dangerous ideologies, but in particular with regards to QAnon, a central tenet of their worldview is that Donald Trump is engaged in a secret war against an elite cabal of pedophiles who are engaging in satanic rituals against children, including cannibalism and drinking their blood. So he, being the egomaniac that he is, of course he's not going to say that this is a conspiracy and it's got nothing to do with me. If he is painted as a hero in this bizarre worldview, he is going to take that for every little bit of attention that he can get. 
while we're on conspiracy and while we're on misinformation, what is the deal with Hunter Biden's laptop? Because this story is very, very, very odd. Two sources named Steve Bannon and Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, two bang up guys. And even the journalist at the New York Post was skeptical to the extent that nobody wanted their byline on the story. What, what, what is happening here? Yeah, I mean, this is the classic hack and dump operation, very similar, I mean, almost identical to something that happened four years ago when Hillary Clinton's emails, you know, were hacked and then suddenly appeared on WikiLeaks, which was then later traced back to Russian intelligence. Essentially, Hunter Biden's or purportedly a laptop belonging to Hunter Biden turned up at a Apple repair shop in Delaware, the home state of the Bidens. This is obviously Joe Biden's son. And on this laptop, which was given to Rudy Giuliani by the repair, the the guy who owned this Apple repair shop, who also apparently reported it to the FBI, there is supposed to be smoking gun evidence of um, Joe Biden's corruption, where he's basically reached out to Ukrainian oil executives to sell, who wanted to use their political influence in the U.S., but <laughs> the mere fact that this laptop kind of mysteriously turned up in this shop and the guy that turned it in to Giuliani and Steve Bannon is somebody who thinks that his worldview is that, you know, he said he turned it in because he was scared that Hillary Clinton's assassins would be after him if he didn't do something about it. It's just, I mean, it's really unbelievable. And I think there's been a lot of kind of it is what it is. And intelligence seems to suggest, and just today, a letter has come out where kind of 50 leaders of US intelligence have signed the letter saying that they think that this is a Russian disinformation campaign. So there's been a lot of kind of bad faith hand wringing about the fact that this story, which is exactly the kind of event that platforms have been uh, preparing for, that you might have a hack and dump from a story that's dubiously sourced just days ahead of a critical election that, you know, this is censorship. So I think it just shows you how bizarre the entire debate about Russian interference has become in the U.S. It's become a polarizing issue to the extent that the reality of the situation cannot be debated for what it is. It's fair to say that uh, but his laptop isn't quite the but her emails of now, is it? It hasn't taken off in the same way. Have we got wiser, do you think? No. Look, I think that the kind of polarization you see in US society and around the election in particular is just another symptom of the corroding information ecosystem. And I think the fact it, it's been really interesting as well as as a way to s- control the spread of disinformation. The fact that the platforms kind of tried to stop the story from being shared seems to have had the reverse impact in in the sense that the New York Post article has actually been amplified. And I think there are you know it's you can almost divide it according to partisan belief: who believes the story is a hack and dump, and who believes it's a smoking gun. So we have not become smarter; we've become more divided. It's Barbara Streisand all over again. Mini is that's the Barbara Streisand effect, by the way, where you magnify <laughs> something by trying to suppress it. For listeners who are wondering why I'm talking about Barbara Streisand, <laughs> Mini, um, the town hall event I just mentioned, uh, Biden mentioned the idea, it uh, seemed to be open to the idea of court packing of the Supreme Court, of adding more members to balance out the uh, strong Republican bias that looks like will be brought in by Amy Coney Barrett almost certainly being confirmed before the election. Is there justification in uh, in Biden packing the court, do you think? This is such a hard question, because on the one hand, you have the moral impediment not to have a judiciary that is politically motivated, and you want the Democrats to champion that. But considering where the US Supreme Court is at at the moment, Biden, in a way, has to respond in kind to what the Republicans are pushing through. If the Democrats win and Biden has Amy Coney Barrett in the Supreme Court, it will prevent him or hinder him from doing anything good. So in a way, they have to court pack in order to be able to get through the next four years strategically. But that can only work if they are focused on pushing through a reform of the judiciary, which will essentially make the Supreme Court more neutral. And and that hasn't come out yet because Biden is tinkering around the edges of a position. So it's a slippery slope, but I think it's one that the Democrats will have to engage with quite urgently. We've got the uh, the second head to and last head-to-head debate coming up on Thursday. The first one was so 
horrible that uh, you know it, it it seemed to disgust all witnesses. Uh, this one's going to be augmented by a mute button. Thank God. Like uh, finally, the debate has discovered what everybody on Zoom has known for months now that the mute button is your friend. What do you think uh, Biden's tactic ought to be if he's possibly coming up against the last stand of Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, forget the political messages for the time being. Uh, Biden has to to calm himself a little bit. Like it must be incredibly frustrating to debate Donald Trump and. Biden absolutely lost it in the last head-to-head to the extent that they both came off really badly. And he has to find a way to manage Trump's ranting and raving without appearing as if he is flustered because it distracts from anything he is trying to communicate to voters. You know, if I was a US voter and I was watching that first head-to-head, I would have felt utterly disenfranchised. And I know that his team have done some soul searching and have had some conversations about whether or not they should put him up for another head to head against Trump. And and I could see why. I think I would be really worried if I was a member of his team, because that style of debate benefits Trump and doesn't benefit Biden. I'm not sure if I agree with that, because I watched it with a US voter. And the big hit moment was when Biden said, oh, will you shut up, man? And I just thought he crystallised the spirit of America in a handful of words there. Will you just shut up? Arthur, before we wrap this up, you know, things are going down to the wire. There's a possibility that senior Republicans are hedging their bets, shall we say. What do we think we can expect from Donald Trump in the final weeks before it goes down to the vote? Well, I think as Trump has always managed to do, you think you've seen everything and then he does something even more crazy. I don't know if everyone saw yesterday, he, during a speech, appeared to say that um, there'd been a criminal bribe from the oil company Exxon of $25 million, which was quickly Exxon came out and said this was this was completely untrue. And I think it probably is untrue. It's just Trump sort of, you know, freestyling. But it's, you know, inside his head is a very, very confusing and strange place. And and I think a lot of crazy stuff is going to come out. I think the other thing that we just need to keep an eye on is, of course, the polls tell you to the extent that they're accurate what people will vote if they're able to vote. And there is a huge amount of risk that people who are still true believers in the Trump mission will, you know, heed his calls and will disrupt voting. Now, that may not be enough to, you know, throw the election, but don't forget that the other people who might be interested in, in disrupting voting are the Russians, who who it seems are, are very active. So I think, you know, we're going to see a lot of chaos, and, and that's just unavoidable. More crazy, Uncle. I just had my inevitable look at uh, 538, 10.7% gap. Just saying. Just saying. <laughs> Finally, you may ask yourself, how did I get here? What got you into politics? What made you start paying too much attention to it and listening to podcasts like this? We thought we should find out where our panel got their start on the road that has you refreshing news websites too often and falling out with your friends. What were their earliest political experiences? Nina, what was what was yours? What got what got you into the uh, into the whirling jacuzzi of politics? Well, I think it was really the experience of growing up in Nepal, you know, a country in South Asia at a time when there was a lot of political disruption. We had a long civil war. We had a monarchy overthrown um, because the people of Nepal wanted to have this thing called democracy. Of course, once we got the first quote unquote democratic government, it was no such thing. And then really being interested in the Western liberal democratic model as a system that actually worked. So when I saw how (laughs) corrupt democracy or liberal democracy was in Nepal, the fact that I could, by virtue of my, you know, German heritage, come to a country like the UK, and then actually engage in the political systems, and partake in something that I thought was greater than myself was something that I thought was an immense privilege and an advantage. And this is really why, having grown up in parts of the world where you see just how bad things can get, I really believe that liberal democracy is something that we need to fight for. How did you get involved? Were we out with placards or, uh, or in, in, in groups or was it always through the writing for you? Definitely through the writing. I interned, I did, I saw, I, I interned in parliament. I was writing. I came at it from an angle where I was more interested uh, to examine political events uh, as a journalist. And then, of course, I basically got my first 
proper job at a small think tank in Westminster, which was focusing on the obscure issue of UK-EU relations. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Getting out of the ground floor on the growth industry. <laughs> that was in 2013 and, you know, the rest, as you say, is history. Who did you intern with in Parliament? I interned with a Lib Dub MP. Um, his name was Adrian Sanders. Um, mm-hmm. good, good man, uh, Adrian. Uh, his primary issues, the policy issues, which he was really interested in, were the badger cull and uh, diabetes. And me, you know, not being from the UK, I just really had no clue what the whole <laughs> thing was. What is a badger? What the hell is a badger? Did you get to meet Brian May? <laughs> I did, actually. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Very hot on the badges. Yeah. Arthur, how about you? What was your formative political experience? Um, well, for, for me, it was when I first joined the Foreign Office, I was relatively young when I did that. I was, I was 22, and I found myself um, on a on an overseas posting in Zimbabwe just a couple of years after that, at the time of the first sort of con- properly contested election in, in Zimbabwe's history, which is in the year 2000, and the MDC, the movement for democratic change was was seriously challenging Robert Mugabe for a majority in parliament. Uh, and I was there as part of a pretty small team in, in the British um, High Commission, as it was. We were involved with election monitoring. We were involved with, um, you know, just trying to have a finger on the pulse of what was going on. But also there was a, there was a major crisis because there were these so-called farm invasions. People might remember the stories of these these white farmers, many of whom were had British nationality, although they'd lived their entire lives in Zimbabwe. So we were quite often dealing with very difficult scenarios, you know, people whose houses have been burned or maybe people have been killed and so on. What it taught me, uh, it was really actually, it was a message that probably resonates for a lot of people in the years since um, 2016, is that the good guys don't very often win. And I say this, in in the, the election in 2000, the MDC had huge support they had a very, very credible slate of candidates. They had a genuine uh, message for Zimbabwe. It wasn't just about doing what the West wanted. They were, were they were a genuinely impressive and necessary political movement for that country. But what they weren't was able to. They weren't able to rig the vote. They didn't have uh, you know gangs of violent thugs who could go around intimidating people. And at the end of the day, that meant that they couldn't win. And it wasn't enough. And they've never controlled the country. Uh, one of Mugabe's closest uh, apparatchiks who's got blood on his hands is now the president. So, you know, it it, it was a salutary, if slightly somber lesson. The only other thing I learned worth adding is that Mugabe himself, who's a complete giant of African politics, whatever you think of him, is a very, very small person. I saw mm. him give a speech and I was just staggered by how tiny he is. So I don't know. <laughs> size doesn't matter, I guess. Do you think it changed you? But did it make you kind of crystallize your political ideas? Were you a different person after going through all that? Uh, I think I was. Funnily enough, I mean, I actually echo a lot of what Nina says, although not from any personal sort of heritage, but just the thing of of realising that whatever one might think of Britain, you know, we're very lucky to have systems that function according to, you know, relatively um, predictable and kind of rule of law based systems. And, uh, you know, that's been something I, I think I've sort of believed very strongly in. And I think just to take that forward to the present day, clearly when what's going on now in Britain is nothing like what's been happening in, in, in Zimbabwe. But I think it's extremely, extremely troubling when you see the government, for example, deliberately decide to break international law, because ultimately what makes a country like Britain worth living in is the fact that the institutions and the laws protect everybody. And if if that starts to be chipped away, then, you know, it, it's 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 the road to ruin. Minnie, how about you? What what pushed you into politics? Hmm. I am essentially a political baby born of the 2010 election. You know, that was <laughs> the first time I could vote. That was at university. But before that, before going to university, I had decided that, that university wasn't for me and that, it, that I shouldn't bother going. So I had a year off and I was working in a bar. I was a bit bored. Um, and I really felt like I had time to give something back to the community and to volunteer. You know, that was an ethic that my mum had definitely instilled in me because she did a lot of community work. So I found myself volunteering at a HIV and AIDS support centre in Birmingham, doing a bit of admin and befriending and, and signposting people to support services. 
And I think volunteering there and seeing the relationships between the LGBT community and communities of colour and people from migrant communities who were all experiencing really different stigmas and problems that were interrelated with their diagnoses sparked in me the idea that something was fundamentally wrong with the way that our political system was working. You know, I really couldn't fathom how people could both feel and physically be so isolated from from public narratives and from services that they desperately needed. Um, There was also an amazing campaigner working there called Gareth Lewis, who had been affected by the contaminated blood scandal and was really active in in challenging the government. Um, He since sadly died, but I I learned a lot that year about how to stand up to a government that, that doesn't include you. What, what kind of a person were you before? Had you had, were you interested, or was it a background thing? Well, I think I was. I was just very young and a bit naive. Mm. You know, I was um, eighteen when I was volunteering at that that support centre, and I hadn't massively engaged in politics um, in a way that made me understand how it affected people's daily lives you know I'd I'd done a history A level and we didn't we touched on the fringes of who was in power and who was in opposition but I hadn't really put together how politics how decision makers can really impact people's lives for both the bad and the good. Well you've all made me feel really ancient because mine is Derek Hatton and militant in Liverpool in the 80s before you were born probably I mean, which is immensely depressing that was my big thing because I'd always wanted to be a journalist and I and I got um I was lucky enough to have an uncle who was a stringer for the Sunday Times and the Sunday Mirror and he basically took me on for a year to make the tea before I went off to university and it happened to be the year of the Derek Hatton ascendancy at Liverpool City Council. It was a year of incredible tumult, which most people know ended with uh, Neil Kinnock denouncing uh, Liverpool City Council at Labour Party conference with his fantastic speech, the grotesque chaos of scuttling around in taxis, delivering redundancy notices to your own workers. This, You felt like you were in the middle of it right in the eye of the storm where it was all happening. And I think it convinced me because, you know, my, my family are, you know, the shopkeepers in Liverpool, they're, they're, they're in butcher's shops and we were very much your classic petty bourgeoisie. And we'd been, you know, they did, you know, when Margaret Thatcher got in, they'd had quite high hopes that, that uh, perhaps, uh, you know, all the things that had been bedevil, bedeviling their business, the fact that, you know, Liverpool was sort of in decay and there was, you know, all of the bad sides of the unions were on, were on, on clear display. They had high hopes that that, that was going to change. And it, it very much didn't. And the city was kind of falling to pieces and the thing that comes in supposedly to save it is this extreme council that has, you know, no ability to manage finances and no interest in managing finances and actually wants to use the city as a kind of battering ram to create, uh, you know, socialism in one city followed by socialism in one region. And I was, I had a front, a front row seat on the intimidation that went on and the, the kind of wild irresponsible policy making and the refusal to set a rate and all this stuff. And it was really convincing. It made me realise that, you know, there's a strain of, of politics out there that is willing to use places and people for what they consider to be a higher goal. And it's basically probably cemented my political ideas since then. And, and certainly with what we've seen recently in the Labour Party, to me, because I'm ancient, I feel like it's a movie I've seen once already and I didn't want to see it again. Do you know what I mean? So this, this is what made me into such a terrible, intolerable Blairite, I think. That's me. <laughs> So we've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics, the things they're watching, listening to or reading to take their minds off what's going on in the world around them. Nina, how about you? What's your diversion of choice this week? Uh, there is no escape. There is no escape, especially <laughs> this close to the US election. So my diversion route, I'm going to cheat a little bit because it is politically oriented right now, is The Trump Show, a three-part or four-part documentary um, on BBC iPlayer, which kind of details the four years of Trump's presidency. And we know how crazy it's been, but just kind of watching back, you know, what has happened, even just in the first few months of his taking the White Office, the, the White House is really incredible. And of course, for me, you know, it's like politics and the documentary, absolute catnip. I, I you've, you've very much bent the rules to breaking point there, Nina, but I'm going to allow it. <laughs> Minnie, how, how about you? What's your diversion and escape route? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that I've reached a point where I'm utterly fed up of looking at a screen and uh, I haven't been doing that much reading throughout the pandemic. So I've decided to get back into fiction as um, a complete escape route. And I'm currently reading uh, Ali Smith uh, Summer, which is in a way it is a bit cheating as well because it is heavily based on politics and climate change. But it's Ali Smith. So it's all, you know, beautiful and escapist and, and wonderful to read. How about you, Arthur? Yeah, well, I, I've certainly struggled to escape politics. And, and like everyone else, the, the refresh on the 538 website has been sort of overdone. But I, I did manage, um, again, with, with some reading, um, someone introduced me to a, a writer I'd never heard of called Roberto Calasso. He's an Italian, but his, his books are in English. And uh, the, the, the first book he published called The Ruin of Cash, cash not being the thing that you pay for things with, but an ancient city in Africa. And it is one of the most fascinating and indefinable books I've ever read in my entire life. I cannot recommend it too highly. It's, it's not a novel. It's not a work of nonfiction. It's, it's, it's something on a completely different plane. And it sort of, it moves from talking about ancient pre-Sanskrit India to uh, the Napoleonic Wars to Pol Pot in Cambodia. And it's, it is incredibly fascinating. And I can't understand why he's not better known. So I'm bigging it up for Roberto Calasso. Excellent stuff. Well, I'm bigging it up for John Cooper Clark whose uh, autobiography, I Want to Be Yours, is absolutely riveting. The beanpole uh, bargain basement Baudelaire of punk of Manchester uh, tells his tale. And, you know, the, the the picture of Manchester in the 50s and in the 1960s, the, the brilliantly entertaining squalor. He's, he is like, he's like a punk Les Dawson. He describes how, uh, you know, as a kid, his idea of entertainment was, um, you know, uh, sit, sitting on the front step watching the local cinema burn down. The thing that surprised me more than anything, because I'm, I'm very familiar with his work and his poetry and his connection with, you know, all of the Manchester scene, but I wasn't aware of just how uh, deep his roots went into the Manchester Jewish community uh, and how much of his sense of humour is old Catskills jokes and how much of it is connected to to a, a culture of in the in the Manchester area that doesn't really get an awful lot of of of, of coverage or indeed its influence on that world of music is is is, is neglected. So I've recommended it enormously. It's out now. Um, you know, it's it's twenty quid hardback, but it's worth every penny. It's even got a vaguely happy ending, which uh, considering the amount of drugs he gets through in it, you, you're amazed that he actually makes it to the end of the book and it's not ghostwritten <laughs> by some kind of uh, executor. But it's called uh, <laughs> I Want to Be Yours, and it's available now. And that is the end of this week's Bunker panel show. Thank you to our panel, Nina Schick. Thank you. Thanks to Arthur Snell. Thank you. And thanks to Minnie Rama for being with us. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or our Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. And if you back us, you'll get a shout-out on the show. And here are a few now. Thanks and best wishes from me to Samuel Little, Linda Morgan and Michael Lancaster. Hello and so very many thanks from me to Emily Bellhouse, Lucy Rose Jefferson and Keith McMurray. It's a big thanks from me to Hamble Wallace, Joanne Potter and Roland Woodbridge. And hello and thanks from me to Jay Smith, Catherine Owen and Get Me Rex Kramer. That's his name. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Nina Schick, Arthur Snell and Minnie Raman. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producers are Jacob Archbold and Yelena Safronovich. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.